In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by the Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Let's pray. God, as we enter into Hebrews, this new series, as we seek your word through the Bible, as we look to expand our understanding of who it is that you are, of what you have come to do, of your mission, of your purpose, of your character, of the way that you change us, help our hearts and our minds and our eyes to be open to you. Holy Spirit, work inside of us as we dig through these things. Help this to bleed out into the way we live our lives, into our relationships, into our view of the people around us, into the way that we love, into the way that we disagree. In all these things, God, may your name be praised and glorified and honored above all other names because it is a powerful name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Today we are starting a series, probably about a five-week series, on the book of Hebrews. Uh, And Hebrews is a unique book. It stands unique uh, in Scripture for a few reasons. Uh, First of which is we don't actually know who wrote it. There are are guesses, there are scholars throughout the years that have argued for different authors of the book. Uh, Some have argued that Paul probably wrote the book. Some have argued that Barnabas may have written the book. There are other names that are out there as well. But in the end, we don't know. We don't know who actually wrote it, and, and we're not actually entirely sure even who it was written to. There are some context clues that give us pieces of understanding, uh, but generally we're not totally sure. There's a mention of Italy later in the book, so the book probably either comes from or to Italy, uh, and that would probably be Rome. But generally there is not a lot of information about the origins or the context of this book because it doesn't give us the context that many other New Testament books do. If you uh, had your Bibles open at Hebrews and you turn back just a page or two, I'll do it here, uh, to the book of Philemon, which is just before, then it, then it starts like this. It starts like this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But Hebrews just jumps right in. And uh, just like I jumped right in at the beginning of this sermon, I actually wanted to do that at the first uh, message. I couldn't help but say good morning before I got up here and started reading the scriptures. I ruined my own punchline because I'm so used to giving you a bit of an introduction. But Hebrews just goes. Uh, And in fact, when he describes what he's writing, he doesn't describe it as a letter. Later in the book, he calls it an exhortation. It's a sermon. It's a pastoral letter. It's possibly someone who has been separated from his church for a time, and he's sending this sermon of challenge and of encouragement and of reminder. 
And you can imagine this maybe being read in a house church, maybe 15 or 20 people gathered around reading the words of this pastor, this teacher, reminding them of who they follow. And if you read it out loud, if you were to pick up the book and read it, it takes about 35 minutes. It's a good sermon length. And so one of the things that I want to encourage you to do as we go through this series, probably better earlier than later, maybe in this next week or so, is to find time to listen to Hebrews. Uh, I sent a YouTube link out to a reading of it uh, by video. Uh, It's just an audio recording with an image. There are other places that you can go. I have an app on my phone that's called Dwell. It's a paid app. It costs a couple of bucks a month, but it gives you access to about 10 different readers of Scripture in different translations. It gives you some nice background music behind. It's a very, very nice way to listen to Scripture, and I've really, really enjoyed throwing it on when I'm in the car or different things like that. And so there are different ways you can listen to it. One of the ways you could listen to it is to simply read it out loud yourself. You'll find that you're listening as well. It's an amazing thing when we pick up Scripture and we actually choose to read it out loud in a room, how that changes how we interact with and think about and absorb what it is that we're coming into contact with. And so one way or another, my encouragement to you is to set aside 30 or 40 minutes in your day and find a way to listen to this sermon, all the way through the sermon of Hebrews. But generally, my point as we introduce is this. Hebrews kind of stands unique in the New Testament. And really, that speaks to the power of this book, that even though we're not totally sure who wrote it, and even though we're not totally sure who it was written to, and we're not totally sure of the context of it, even though it doesn't really totally fit the format of the other book's in the Bible, it has risen above all of that. It has has transcended that. It was considered important enough that when those who got together to form the New Testament canon and say, this is what the New Testament looks like, when they were influenced by the Holy Spirit and that process took place, this book made it. This had something significant and special and powerful to speak to the church, not just this church that is specifically being addressed, but to all of us as the church in the thousands of years since. There is something powerful in this book, and we're going to be getting into that as we go through. And it turns out that the folks in the church that this was originally written for, they weren't so different uh, from you and me. There are a lot of similarities between them and between us, and they were going through some struggles They were going through some difficult times. There are a few things that are referenced throughout the book that give us a picture of where they were at. Some of the people in this book, in this church, they're stalled out. They started following Jesus. They had a lot of energy and passion. And then they sort of just stopped. They got bored. They got disenchanted. Didn't turn out to be quite what they thought it was going to be. And they slowed down. They're not growing anymore. They're not really engaging anymore. And, and they're just sort of struggling and wrestling with how is it that I continue on this faith journey that felt so fresh and alive at one point, but now it just kind of feels dead and boring and normal. It doesn't feel special or, or exciting like it did one time. And then there are people who are going through specific persecution. They're walking through intense valleys in their lives. They're going through difficult times, both from external pressure and then from just difficult situations in their own lives. And certainly... We can relate to that in this church. We have walked through valleys together, and we have walked through valleys individually. These are things that we can connect with. And then on top of that, there are people, there's a few references throughout the book that refer to people who are just plain making bad choices. 
They have said, this is what I want to do. This is who I follow. This is the group that I am associating myself with. And yet, they might understand this intellectually, but their actions are not lining up with it. They're, they're making choices that don't reflect what they've said is important to them. And so all of these things, this isn't an accusation of our church. This is an acknowledgement of human nature. That everyone goes through these things in their lives. And in Pleasant Valley, all of us go through these things in different ways. And so Hebrews is a book that speaks powerfully to us as we recognize that these cycles are a part of our lives. And it speaks words of truth to those of us who are in one of those places right now, who are walking through seasons of difficulty or of doubt or of stagnation where you just don't feel like you're growing. It just doesn't feel like your faith is alive in the way that you wish it was. Hebrews speaks directly into that. It's a powerful book. I want to circle back around to that opening line. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We're the church. And one of the primary identifiers of our community, one of the things that makes us the church, one of our identities is that we are a people who are being spoken to. Does that make sense? The author of Hebrews, no introduction in this book, no preamble. He jumps right in and he grabs us by the ears. He says, God's talking to you. God's talking to you. Are you listening? And at some level, that might seem like a bit of a silly question. Are you listening? Of course you're listening. You're here. You're stuck listening to me for the next 20 minutes. We're going to be walking through Hebrews together. You're listening. But it's not that simple. And actually, I think you understand this. I think we all get this. That listening, that really listening, is actually an incredibly difficult thing to do. Most of our listening in life is half-hearted. It's sort of distracted. It's thinking about other places or other things or other issues. It's incredibly difficult to listen well. And I'm certainly guilty of this. This is Maybe you can relate with me here. When Aaron and I were dating uh, back in Bible college, and we would go out somewhere for coffee. Remember going out for coffee? When we would go out for coffee, and we would sit across the table, and I would listen to every single word that she had to say. I desperately wanted to know more about this woman in front of me, and, and, and what was she thinking, and what did she like, and what did she not like, and, and, and where did she come from, and, and, and what did she think about me, and, and all of this. It was this sort of intense listening that I was doing. Uh, and as we continued to date, and as we got engaged, and as we've now been married for over 10 years, it's not that I care less. And it's not that I love her less. I love her more than I ever have. But I probably don't listen as well. I'm probably a little overconfident that I kind of know what she's going to say before she says it. I don't have that same level of, of curiosity maybe that I had at one point. And, and I've stopped listening quite as well as I should. And this is, this is a little bit shameful for me, but I hope that at least some of you can relate to this. Sometimes she'll be talking to me and I'll be giving every indication that I'm listening. I'll, I'll be making eye contact. And I'll be nodding my head, and I might go, uh-huh, or yeah, or these sorts of things. And then at the end, I realize there's a pause, and there's been a question asked. And I actually don't have any idea what she wants from me at that point, because I haven't really been listening. I've been thinking about 
the sermon that I'm writing, or I've been thinking about the Jets game, or I've been thinking about something that's on my to-do list, and, and my head's been somewhere else completely, even though it kind of looks like I'm listening. And I've got two choices at that point, right? One is, I can answer, I can go in blind and kind of hope that I get the right answer that she's looking for, and hope that I'm not signing up for something that I actually don't want to be doing. Or, I can step back and I can kind of humbly say, you know what? I wasn't listening. I, wasn't li- I looked like I was listening. I even actually kind of thought that I was listening. But when I actually think back, I don't know anything about what you just said. And I, I need you to repeat it for me. Could you do that for me? Is that something that you can identify with? Or how about this? This is something I think that we can all identify with. What, when you start a story or start telling a joke or start talking about your day to somebody, and a sentence or two in it becomes very clear that the other person is not paying any attention to what it is that you are saying. And you realize that they're not at all invested in what you're saying or talking about. Uh, and they're not really registering any of it. Or even worse, they heard the first sentence or the first three words. And now their brain is shut off because all they're doing is thinking about what they're going to say once you've stopped talking. That is something I think that we can all relate with too. So this is the trouble with listening. It is a difficult thing to do. Can you relate to that? Do you need me to repeat it? One of the things that I've been convicted of personally, um, and also as I've processed Hebrews in preparation for this series, thinking about our church family, is that our connection to Jesus, our future as a community, our growth and our depth and our success as a body of Christ depends deeply on how well we listen. It requires us as a community to take on a posture of listening, to approach God's Word, to listen to God's Spirit with humility, with a setting aside of our own agenda or our own plan and a humble listening to what it is that God wants to say to us. And so the author of Hebrews starts off, God is talking to us. Are you listening? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Our ancestors, the author is saying, were spoken to by prophets in many times in various ways. God has done this before, but now he is doing it in a new way and in a better way through Jesus. It's not to say that the old way was wrong, But it is to say that the way things were done before were all leading up in some way to this new revelation, that Jesus is the ultimate expression of what these shadows or these precursors were beforehand. And that really sets up the whole rhythm of the book of Hebrews, the rhythm for the series that we are going to be going through. God worked among our ancestors. God worked among the Old Testament people, but all of that was leading up to and driving toward the truest and highest and best revelation of who God is, of what his purpose and character and relationship to us is. Everything is heading towards Jesus. And this is just a screenshot uh, from, from the video, the Bible Project video that I linked for you. Bible Project is a group of people. They've worked through, I think by now, all the books of the Bible, as well as many of sort of biblical topics, and create these little explainer videos that kind of give you a big picture overview of what the various books are about. I find them incredibly helpful. If you're a visual learner, it's an amazing tool. They kind of sketch out the entire book 
uh, on this piece of paper as they're talking. It's a very, very cool way to get an overall sense uh, of what a book is getting at. They do a very good job. But they kind of show us in, the, in this video the, the rhythm of things. Chapter 1 and 2 uh, of the book of Hebrews deal with Jesus. They speak about Jesus as the ultimate uh, revelation or the ultimate word or the ultimate Torah. Uh, originally, the author says, originally God revealed himself and brought us his word through angels. And the people in this church, the people who come out of a Jewish background go, oh yeah, Deuteronomy 33, obviously. And, and that bumps up against one of the tough things about the book of Hebrews. This book was written for Jewish believers, people who had come out of a Jewish faith, who had grown up sort of steeped in the Old Testament. The author is constantly referencing deep theology and spiritual understandings of things that would have been second nature to this group, maybe not so much culturally or in our understanding for us today. It's not the way that we think or process. We don't intuitively get it. Uh, it's a bit like I have brothers-in-law on Aaron's side of the family. who are They're both into cars, and they also both happen to be named Charles. And so the Charleses uh, talk about cars a lot. And, and, and how they've tuned their engines and, and, and what sort of turbos they've added and, and you know, torque and oil and gears and, and all this kind of stuff. And I enjoy being a part of those conversations at whatever level I can. And I understand probably most of it and, and I kind of follow along. But, but it's just a different language to me. And, and Hebrews was written to a bunch of Old Testament scholars, a bunch of geeks that really understood this stuff deeply. And, and so when we're digging into this book, there's a lot that we can get out of it without knowing what the author is referencing, without immediately having those passages jump to mind. But there's also some that will fly over our heads without a bit of heavy lifting and some paying attention to the study notes and the cross-reference notes uh, that you find in your Bibles. But that's a side note. We're going to have fun digging through some Old Testament stuff over the course of this passage. But the author here is saying, you all know about the angels from Deuteronomy and how they fit into our theology and revelation. But Jesus is better than that. He's a better revelation and he's a better ruler than the angels. And then chapters 3 and 4 look at Moses and Joshua and the search for the promised land and they're wandering in the desert and they're looking to find rest and they're looking to find closure to their journey, but they never truly find it. And Jesus brings true rest. He brings the perfect promised land. He's a better leader than Moses and Joshua. And later they talk about priests and their role. And they say Jesus is from a totally different category of priest than our temple priests. And he accomplishes purification that our priests never could. He's a better priest. He's a greater priest. And then they speak about sacrifices. And Jesus, of course, we know this. We went through the Easter story. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for us. He accomplishes what nothing else could. Over and over, the same rhythm is repeated. In the past, God did it one way, but it was impermanent. It was imperfect. It was only for a time, and it was all leading towards, all driving towards Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of previous revelations, of all the things that God has been doing in the past. And the author of this book just pulls up reference after reference, and excitedly draws the listener into this pattern. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing here. This is where it was all headed. And that really is the whole story of the Bible and how God created us with a purpose. 
that we've fallen short of and we've twisted and we've distorted it and sin has twisted and distorted it. And God is doing what is necessary to restore us and creation back to what we were originally made for. And the ultimate expression of that is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is speaking to us. Are you ready to listen? And just in case you weren't totally sure as we're entering into this, just in case his church that this Hebrew author is speaking to wasn't quite ready to listen, the author front loads this book with an overflowing list of Jesus' accomplishments and titles in the first three verses. That's all we're really going to get into today is the first three verses of this first chapter. I promise the rest of the series will move quicker than this. But this cha- verse 2 and 3 sort of serve as uh, a resume or a list of qualifications or credentials that establish or prove that Jesus is someone who is worth listening to. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And here we see wordplay and choices that are meant to tie back in to Old Testament scriptures. In these two verses, there are seven different references or statements on the nature of Jesus that set up his authority as a voice that is worth listening to. And in the time we have left, as we prepare to jump into this book over the next few weeks, I want to walk through these seven credentials or statements on who Jesus is. So first, Jesus is the greater inheritor. Verse 2 says that Christ has been appointed heir of all things. And again, the listening ears would have perked up and gone, oh, that's Psalm 2. That's Psalm 2 language. Uh, Specifically, verses 7 and 8, the Lord speaking in the psalm saying, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus, Hebrews is saying, is the king who was to come, the one who could inherit all the nations. Uh, Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created for him. You could also say that are translated as all things were created toward him. Isn't that beautiful? The universe has momentum. Everything in creation in some way is a signpost or a direction pointing to or flowing to its true inheritor. Jesus is royalty. I was trying to think of, of a royalty example. I don't think Justin Trudeau is the right pull here. Uh, and I was trying to figure out who would be the guy, a, a, a Queen Elizabeth or I don't, Tom Hanks? <laughs> I, I didn't know. But, but so I reached out to actually to, to Mike Tyson and Matt Clausen and just said, hey, you guys, like, I'm trying to come up with a name here. Um, who would be somebody that would connect with this church as being royalty. Like if they walked in, this would be a big deal. And immediately Matt Clausen said, Michael W. Smith. And it's true. If Michael W. Smith walked in the doors, we would pay attention, right? Our ears would perk up. We would no longer be thinking about 
what's happening for lunch, or if we had missed a text message, or our performance review coming up on Monday, we would be focused on three-time Grammy Award-winning Christian recording artist Michael W. Smith and what he had to say. And that's a silly example. But Christ is true and ultimate royalty, the heir to all that is. And he is here, the pastor is saying. He's speaking to us. Are we ready to listen? Second, Jesus is creator. He is heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Here we have echoes, of course, of Genesis uh, and also of Proverbs, Proverbs 8, of a creator God who spoke the world into being. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that for us there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we all live, all things from Christ. I could go off on another tangent through our solar system and through the deep seas and through the rainforests, but we don't have time for that today. Go outside on a clear night and look up at the stars. Our Creator is speaking. Are we listening? Third, He is a radiator. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. I really like this analogy. I, I don't know... Uh, how many of you are like me and have at some point in your life tried to look into the sun directly? It's a bad idea. Don't do it. But also, we've all done it once or twice, but don't do it. It's a bad idea. But you've probably tried it at least once. The sun is, if you have tried to do this, impossible to really see. You look up at the sun and your eyes is just whited out. You can't really comprehend or understand or see the sun in any practical way. But the radiance of the sun makes everything around us visible. It gives us the light that we have. It gives us warmth and heat. And so this is, in some ways, the way that God works, right? God the Father is, in some sense, He's unknowable. He's unperceivable. He's robed in pure light. And we can't fully understand or comprehend Him. But through Jesus, we see the warmth and the radiance and the reality of God coming to meet us here in our midst in a way that we can see and feel and understand. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. He's also a representer, it says, and the exact representation of his being. The word there in Greek, I'm not going to try and pronounce it correctly, but the word is the one by which we get character uh, in our modern language. It's the type or the makeup or the essence of something. But there's a, another meaning to the word, that I think can bring unique understanding. It also means imprint, the imprint. And some Bible translations actually translate it as imprint. And it refers especially to a coin that is stamped with a die. So there is a metal, uh, there's a carving that is cast into metal and then stamped or pressed into this blank disc, this planchet. And the, and the image, raised image that is left behind is the impression or the character. Jesus is the perfect impression of God. And, and in some ways, this is similar to radiance in that you look at this big die or the stamp, you could even kind of get underneath and look at it, but certainly when you're seeing it generally, you don't really have a sense of what this coin is going to look like when it's stamped. It's hard to sort of perceive what the image is going to be, but once that stamping happens and once you see this coin that bears the impression of the original stamp, it becomes clear. We can see clearly that the invisible God has been made visible through Jesus. Jesus perfectly represents God. Fifth, Jesus is sustainer. 
Just as he is creator, he is also sustainer. It says, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And that word that is used there, that's the spoken word. That's the same sort of word that is used in Genesis. Just as the universe was called into existence with a word, it is also sustained with a word. Colossians 1.17 says that in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is literally the one who is actively sustaining all created existence by the power of his spoken word. Are we listening? Sixth, purifier. The passage continues. After he had provided purification for sins, Jesus did what no priest could ever do. Priests had to, year after year, continue to provide sacrifices for sins. It was a never-ending cycle. But Jesus accomplishes perfect purification through his death and resurrection. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the highest priest. And through him, this unending cycle of purification ends because he's closed the loop in a way that no human priest, no angel, nothing in the Old Testament could do. We're going quick through some of these, but this is going to kind of form some of the backbone of this series as we go through. We're going to dig into some of these ideas more over the next weeks. Seventh, he is a ruler. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In case it wasn't clear to you by now, Christ rules over all things. This is an overwhelming list of accomplishments and titles. It makes our head spin. But maybe what's most beautiful about this last statement is the fact that Jesus Christ, ruler of all, sits down. What does that mean? That he sits down. It means that his work is finished. The priests were never able to sit down. They always had another sacrifice to make, another purification ritual. Those who work and strive are never able to truly sit down. There's always more to do. Earthly rulers, never able to really sit down. There are wars to fight and disputes to settle and subjects to keep in line. Jesus Christ, having perfectly accomplished all that those in the Old Testament from angels on down could not, takes a seat. His work is done. As we draw to a close, last week Kendall shared a uh, Lord of the Rings quote when he preached. Today I'm going to go to the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis writes a scene with Lucy, who is on a spiritual quest, and she sees the lion Aslan, Christ, shining bright and huge in the moonlight. This is what it says. In a burst of emotion, Lucy rushed to him, burying her face in the rich silkiness of his mane, whereupon the great beast rolled over on his side, so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath was all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. We, the church, you and me, we're not perfect. We're tired. We stall out. We doubt. We fail. We sin. We hurt. And if we aren't right now, we have before. And we will again. 
There are going to be seasons and times where it doesn't seem like it makes sense, where it doesn't feel worth it, where we start to make Jesus smaller in our minds in comparison to the problems around us. The sermon that the author of Hebrews gives is designed in every way to expand our view of Christ. And what a launch pad he creates in these first three verses. Hebrews doesn't make God bigger. God's the same size he always was. But as we read it, and as we experience it, and as we allow the living and active word to change us, as we grow and mature, God grows in our eyes, and in our hearts, and in our minds. In the first three verses of the book, the author expertly, deeply sketches out our understanding of a God who is the perfect heir to all things. He is creator. He is radiance of God himself. He is a perfect representation or imprint. He's the active sustainer of all things. He's the perfect purifier and sacrifice and the victorious resting ruler. And he, this God, is speaking to us. And the question as we enter into this series, is are we listening? Amen. I'm going to do the benediction. I'm going to stay in this benediction throughout the series. It's the one from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 20 here. This is my prayer for us as we leave from here. May the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.